You are listening to audio from the church at Junius Heights. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, thechurchatjuniusheights.org. You'll notice in your handout, uh, your little bulletin, that I mix it up a little bit today. I'm not sure if people actually use that and fill in those blanks. And so I've, I've given you kind of two options. For those of you who there are no strings on you, like Pinocchio, and you don't like lines, I gave half the bottom of the page for you just to write and scribble however you want to do notes. And, and above that is the lines to kind of write down whatever you feel like God has for you from the word today. And, and, con, and as a confession, part of, part of the reason I did that is I didn't even know what to put in there. Um, the, the, the weight and the thickness and what is going on inside Acts chapter 7, I, I couldn't figure out four solid points with applications to write up a little notebook slide section thing. I couldn't do it. And so I'm really relying on the Holy Spirit here. I've done a lot of research and did a lot of reading and I got a lot of notes and I'm just trusting the Lord's gonna say what he wants to say in the midst of us looking at his word together. And so uh, if you missed last week, it was Valentine's Day. And if that's a major exciting moment for you or a bummer for you, it doesn't matter. Here's the reason. The Valentine's Day and the whole thing about love and a day for that, that's God's idea anyways. Like it's all his, his love that engaged us in the first place. It gave us a reason for St. Valentine and Valentine's Day. And I feel like we're getting engaged with the love of God here as we look at the text. That God has lovingly shown us a picture of what life could be with him, what life can be whenever God is with us, where we can let religiosity die and relationship with the one true king fill up into our lives. He's loving us and giving us his text. And so Valentine's Day was a bummer. Glad you're here, right? Because now we're gonna look at the text and God loves us. And I, I looked at the text a hundred different ways and we, we live in an age right now where in culture, everybody wants to be autonomous. Your God is good with you as long as it's not uh, in, the, in the way of what I want to believe. We, we live in a culture where it, it's demanded, <laughs> it's, it's intolerant if you're not tolerant. If you're, if you're intolerant, then we're not going to tolerate that. There's, there's a standard where everyone has to believe whatever they want. You have to agree with me or don't agree with me, but you can't put yours on top of me. You can't say yours is the authority. You can't say that your truth is true. And to speak the truth, Christians are cowering because they, for whatever reason, buy into the lie that, well, your faith is your own and your spirituality is your own. And I'm gonna let you do your thing. Whenever we have been given, the God of truth has given us an anchor point with which to dialogue in this culture, with which to bring the gospel and the things that God has said and done, who's God Almighty, who's spoken them. We get to, we get to be like Stephen and make an argument to the culture with truth and history and you don't have to buy, in, buy into this. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about Stephen, and, and really he was kind of introduced, and we looked at the church and how this is what the church looked like, and they appointed, and they prayed, and they served, and there was this really sweet moment where God showed us what the generosity of the church can do in the life of some folks. Well, Stephen was in the middle of this. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they laid hands on him, and he was one of the first deacons. Well, we look at Stephen a little bit further, and he's not just a deacon that, that does the parking team, or he's not just a deacon that, that sweeps the floors or handles the money or the prayer ministry. This guy, Stephen, was anointed by God to proclaim the gospel. He was anointed by God to engage, and he was specifically purposed to engage 
a culture of people because he, he was a Hellenist. He spoke Greek. He was a perfectly timed person to engage. And if you look back in chapter six, he is in the temple engaging. He's speaking the language of the people and he is with different Jewish synagogues and different backgrounds. He is the one who's speaking to them, helping them understand this Jesus that they have missed. And he's doing it with boldness and ferocity and clarity that was unparalleled. They couldn't, they couldn't reason outside of him, so he just kept speaking. And this enraged the leadership of the day. It enraged, and, and people were so mad that he was so clearly talking about the God of the Bible and what God has said that they, they created false charges and they had him arrested. Stephen's audience was a, a group of people whose worldview was drastically different from his own. And a worldview that longs to keep the name of Jesus and the God of the Bible out of the discussion. And Stephen brings it back in. And so while this text is something that happened 2,000 years ago, it's, it's today. We live in a culture that wants to keep Jesus and the, the historicity of the Bible out of the equation and just, I'm gonna do me, and if you say that's wrong, well, you're wrong. And, and, and the God of the Bible is speaking, and he has sent people to be the ones who stand up and speak. And Stephen is one of those folks, and the church is the other of those folks today. Today we see how one man, full of the Holy Spirit and God's word, has the power to stand against the culture. So I'm gonna read kind of beginning with the end in mind. And so look at the end of Acts chapter seven, starting in verse 56. And please stand with me as we read God's word. And turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew. And if you don't own a Bible, that one belongs to you. Put your name in it, that's yours. If you don't have an ESV, that's great. You can take that one and have both translations. It's gonna be on the screen. You don't have to read it with me. I just want you to follow along with the culmination of Stephen's debating, his evidence, his testimony. This is what happens in 54. Verse 54 of chapter seven. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, 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 don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord, and the people said, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So those last six verses are this climactic, dramatic scene where Stephen is just all the way out there, and they, they stone him to death. Where they take stones, and they took him outside the city, and they throw rocks at him. This is the... This is the, I think, reason corporal punishment and this kind of punishment in the Old Testament. Some commentator said, this is why God set it up this way. Because the ones who were accusing him to throw the first stone. They had to justify death themselves and not have some sanitary way to do it across town. This is why it was such a significant deal. They took him out of the city. They were so mad. They covered their ears and they threw rocks at him. Stephen's loving people with the gospel, with clarity, with power. And instead of listening and leaning in, instead of trusting and trying to discover more, they persecuted him and reviled him and uttered all kinds of evil against him falsely. 
on the account of Christ. They put up charges, trumped up fake charges to get him before the council, and then they unfairly tried him. Does this sound familiar? Has any other person in the Bible been uh, unfairly tried before a council uh, by loving people and like helping the needy and feeding those that are hungry? Yeah, Stephen's following in the footsteps of his master, Jesus. And with historical biblical clarity, with, with texts from the Old Testament, ancient texts that we like to skip over and just have lots of highlights in the back of our Bible, but not a whole lot of highlights in the front of our Bible, he engages his culture. And right now, there's not a, a man on trial that we can watch the news. It's being tried like this for being a Christian, and he's standing up for his faith. In other countries, this absolutely is happening. But in the United States, there's not something to watch on CNN. We can't go turn on the TV and watch the trial of a Stephen. But absolutely, Christianity is on trial today. The truth of God, the truth of the gospel, the, the veracity of the text, this is absolutely on trial, unjustly being tried. And Christianity is under fire in a zillion ways. The, the list is quite endless of the, the ways that Christianity no longer has a voice in culture. The, whether you take it something as simple as prayer out of schools or the silence the teachers have to have around their faith, all the way to legalizing abortion and the way they've redefined marriage as a whole and redefined gender with new language and new words that we can't put the truth of the scriptures and the truth of the Old Testament, the truth of God into it. We have to just agree that this is now the new way. There's a revolution, a sexual revolution that's rolling through our culture and they wanna keep Jesus and the Bible out of it. You can get kicked out of the junior league for not volunteering enough but you, you, you can't kick somebody out of a public, you can't kick somebody out of a, a, a church congregation for sinning. The, the unrepentant sin we can't deal with without lawsuits. Like they're taking the scriptures and the truth of God out of culture is what's happening. And, and our man Stephen was ready at a time, such a time as this, he believed in the gospel. He was trained up. He didn't just passively sit around in his faith. He was trained up with the scriptures deeply into his heart so he would be ready. Then he was deployed. And when he was deployed out into the, the work that God had for him, the Holy Spirit filled him with power. Because of Christ, he was made available. And churches are filled with unavailable Christians. Our pace and our priorities crowd out the needs of people around us, the brokenness that we see in people's eyes, our pace and our priorities, it seems like is a massive percentage of the battle, a massive chunk of us being available to be used by God. A big chunk of it is just being available. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, but we're not trained in the Old Testament, but we're just free to share the gospel, free to engage somebody, that's, that's half the battle. And, and our pace and priorities keep us from being available like Stephen. That we are, this is important, making money. This is important, kids' sports. Guilty. This is, this is important, social life. This is important, vacations. This is important. These are priorities of mine that I keep high. And the broken world around us, the loss around us, is, is, is I'll get to it if the church is setting up a program that I can jump into for one day. Our pace and our priorities shift us. And, and my wife is a fantastic discipler of our kids 
and she, she's an, a fantastic evangelist because she like deploys our kids to go share the gospel. And, and so she makes these big bags of uh, you know, treats for Valentine's Day or for Christmas or whatever, and they're covered in chocolate. And who doesn't like stuff covered in white chocolate and pretzels? And, and she puts them in these little baggies, and we've got a list of our neighbors that we've met and known in our neighborhood. They were trying to figure out who's lost and who's found and then use our kids as like that, hey, we're easy to hang out with. Look how cute they are. Here's some free candy. Well, no, Jesus? Yeah, it's a real quick switcheroo. But we're, we're rolling around town in, in the neighborhood, and the kids and I are delivering these bags of candy, and, and we get to this house down the street, Brian and Alex, and, um, and I had to apologize to them. We met at a, a party in the neighborhood, and I said, let's hang out. I'd love to catch up. Let's grab coffee. Let's grab a, a beer. Let's get together, whatever. And they said, we'd love to do that. I grew up in church, but we don't go anymore. And I'm actually now agnostic is what he said. And, and I had to apologize to them because I met you four months ago, and this is the first time we've figured out a time to hang out. Our pace and our priorities shut us down from being able to, to be with the people who need to hear the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Well, Stephen's available. He's out there on the water. He's ready to go. He just can't help but not communicate with these people who are practicing some religious order that didn't make sense, that, that missed Jesus in the gospel. And so he's out there engaging and talking, and this is what got him in trouble. He was compelled. He was heartbroken because he, he looked at his brothers and he goes, you guys are missing it. You don't know that Jesus fulfilled all of the law that you're holding so tightly to. All of the religious practices that you think are so important, Jesus did those for you when you can't do them. You're missing it. So he engaged. He was available and he was engaged. But because of Jesus, he was this historian. Because of Jesus, he was biblically competent. And I, I want to make this really clear. While we live in a culture where being educated and the, having multiple degrees and studying is sort of uh, highly esteemed. And we could study the scriptures all day long, and we should. And that's going to get to my second piece of this. But only by the grace of God and the power of Christ did he have the words to say there. He was available and God spoke through him. He was available and he was ready. There's a, a saying, if, if you're from Bryan, Texas, or you lived in Bryan, Texas for a little bit, or you're from the country, you probably heard this before, if it ain't in the well, it won't come up in the bucket. No? You don't use that one with your family or anything like that? If it ain't in the well, it won't come up in the bucket. And, and oftentimes what comes up out of the bucket of the well of my heart is, is frustration and anger and resentment and, and passive aggression. I got all kinds of things that come up out of, the, out of the bucket, but occasionally, so does the word of God. Occasionally, in a moment where I need it, God's spirit takes the word that I've put in there and, it, and raises it up out. And, and this is what happened to Stephen. He's about, we haven't even read what he said yet. We haven't even got to chapter seven. This is what happened to Stephen. He has the word deeply in his heart, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit, in a moment, brings it up. Because all of life is not really prepared, right? You can't prepare. Well, I prepare for sermons. You can't prepare for these half conversations with family members that just pop up. You can't prepare for random homeless people to see you counting money in your car and then ask you to buy them shoes, right? You can't prepare for these moments where you have coworkers that ask about Jesus. You have to, be, you have, to have the Spirit of God and the Word of God deeply so that God can raise it up out. And so while he, 
He was trained, he was ready, the Holy Spirit brought it up. If you wanna highlight or turn to John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promises this is gonna shake out. You can just write it down and go look at it later on. He says, when I send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate, the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. That there's this promise I can hold on to that if I've read a passage one time, it's in my brain somewhere, and then if I needed it to, Jesus could bring it up out. He was historically confident because he spent time in the scriptures in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit brought it up out of him. Something else to note about our man Stephen is he engages with humility and history. And people say history is so subjective. I had a guy tell me the other day that history, it's like irrelevant or at least dismissible because you weren't there. You don't really know. And so oral tradition can sort of break it down. And so he goes, how can you trust anything that's biblically historical because no one was really there to know? Well, if that's the argument you're going to take, that's a bunch of hogwash because then you have to dismiss what your grandmother told you about what she remembers from the Depression. You know what, I wasn't at the Depression, Great Depression, I, I didn't do what they did, but I do know that I overeat sometimes because my grandmother said when I was a kid, if you put on your plate, you eat it. Eat all of it, no matter what. So I'm like eating my kids' food, my wife's food, just finishing it off because she grew up in the Great Depression. I wasn't there, but I believe that it really happened because she tells me. And people in culture will say, you can't, you can't buy into biblical history because you weren't there. Well, that's hogwash, it's nonsense. It's ridiculous, because you have to throw out everything. If you weren't there, you can't buy that we had George Washington was our first president. You can't, you can't buy anything. And what it does is if you buy into that, this is like history doesn't matter, well then it moves you to this sort of like fatalistic indifference where you, the future is no longer relevant either because you can't control that, you weren't there, and so all there is now is like right now, the present, just live it up. And, and this is where culture has sort of anchored down to. But, but that's irrational. History and the history of God's word the text that we read is credible today. Because Stephen knew the Bible and Christ was with him, he made a compelling argument. He made an apologetic argument. If you don't know Christian lingo or if you wanna learn some today, apologetics is not saying I'm so sorry. It is apologizing, that's apologizing, but apologetics is, is making a systematic defense of a theory or doctrinal position. And Christians, People in every church across the entire country should be apologists. We should be able to make a clear and compelling argument for what we believe to be true as opposed to just saying, have faith, brother, it's gonna be all great. Yes, you can have faith that God is in control and when he returns, it will be all great. But this is what the text says and this is why the text is credible and relevant. This is why our scriptures are more unique than the scriptures that are out there that people follow. We've got parchments that are within 100 years dated of the moments they're talking about. The New Testament is not this random book of stories that got passed down for hundreds of years. This is historical, documented paper we can look at, that people have deciphered. There's, a, there's reason behind our faith that is logical, that makes an apology. It, it lets people understand. And, and if we don't spend time digging into it, we're, we are without our anchor point in the word. Okay, verse 13 of chapter six. I promise we're getting to chapter seven. Verse 13 of chapter six, this is what the argument was. They said, if you look at verse 13 in chapter six, the, I gotta get there too. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak word against the holy place and the law. 
For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So their positional argument, if you're listening to why they're saying you're arrested and you're wrong, you, you, you spot, speak negatively towards this place and our customs. And you say that Jesus is gonna take away the things that Moses gave to us. They're holding fast to customs and a location and this sort of worship that they have in a place, in a temple at a time. This is their accusation against him. And they didn't realize that their worship was to a geographic spot in a building. They didn't, they didn't realize that it was limited by just a little room in a really beautiful cathedral-looking thing. They didn't realize that they were limited by the people they'd held up so high. Moses was this like high hero. They thought about him as the, the one, the, the, the guy who was the savior of Israel because technically he did rescue them out of the, the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt, but, but they held him in this super high esteem and, and they're, 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 they're not realizing that their leaders that they're holding fast to are limited, unlike Jesus who is unlimited. And they're limited by their religiosity, that their patterns of behavior shown up to church every Sunday, their patterns of showing up with their sacrifices, their patterns of following all of the Mishnah, that was the extension of the, the, the Mosaic law. All of these laws, they just did them really well, better than everybody else, and they were always clean and washed and perfect, and they didn't realize that their religiosity all too often and absolutely was not enough to hold on to. And all of the things they were holding to, they missed that they were a type, a picture of Jesus who is to come. And so real quickly, I want to look at chapter seven and go through the arguments that he builds. Historically, he looks at the text and goes, look at these points, brothers. He starts with humility, verse one. Brothers, fathers, hear me. He, he engages with this humble picture going, hey guys, we're on the same family and, and I wanna just roll through some things that are true that you and I both agree with. How are you gonna engage somebody who's lost? Find a common ground and agree with them. Let them know that we're both humans and we're both sinful. We both are not perfect and we don't got it all figured out, but I feel like I've got a lead on something and let me walk you through it. He engages them with this fantastic humility and then he runs through a few arguments. And so I'm just gonna summarize them because they're multiple and deep. And if you wanna spend a, a zillion hours of studying and reading and not do anything else all week and not write a good sermon because you're too busy studying and reading, dig into these. Because God has woven into the history of our story, the gospel. He's woven into the history of our story these pictures of Christ that are so obvious once you see them. They're so clear that this was just the setup for him. When you read the Old Testament, it comes alive. We're going, goodness gracious, I didn't see it before. There he is, all of these places. He's trying to show them, hey, this is why you missed it in your religious leaders. And this is where Jesus was in that story that you didn't see. He's trying to help him. Abraham is our first one he uses. In verse two, he said, God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia before there was a promised land. That he didn't need a promised land or a location geographically. He was already with them where he was. God with us. Matthew chapter one, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. And Abraham, before we even got to the promised land, God was with him. So don't hang on to a, a place or a geography or a season of time or a temple to worship in or a church building. Don't hang on to it. Because he didn't even get to inherit the place. If you keep on reading, 
Verse five, yet he gave him no inheritance. God gave Abraham this incredible promise, yet Abraham didn't get to receive the promise. He didn't get to inherit the promised land. He wandered around the promised land for a while, and then he died before he was buried there. He never got to live in it. This land you're holding on to, this house, this dream, this pattern of living and worship, this financial prosperity and success, put into whatever you want there, holding on to something that is, is not God's, God's not there. <laughs> He's not in the land. He's not in our bank accounts, and, and he wasn't there. But Abraham was the guy they were holding up, revering, lift, lifted up super high. In Hebrews 11.10, it says that Abraham wasn't even looking for a temple place. He was looking for a heavenly place, one that's foundations whose builder is God, so he's building this uh, picture that Abraham, the guy you're worshiping, he's not the one. He, this place is not the one. And if you look at this, it's not, this, not the place. Much less, if you look at Abraham's history, Abraham was a liar. Abraham heard the promise and then decided he would have, have intercourse with his wife's maidservant to like, make the promise his own. He was not this one to lift up. And, and, and I sometimes, uh, no, I don't cringe because I understand how God has set up the church. But I just never want to be pastor-centric I never want to be the reason why you show up is uh, if Travis is preaching today. Because holding too fast to a, a leader, they're imperfect and they can't hold your hope and they're gonna let you down. And Paul, Paul, Stephen is letting his, his audience know, don't, you've missed it with him. You missed it with him. Verse eight and nine, verse eight and nine. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, the Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. You see the theme of God being with him again. Sold him into Egypt. These, these guys holding fast to the temple and traditions and the customs, their patriarchal fathers were the ones who threw their brother into the pit and pretended to kill him that their leaders they are following, they weren't that great of leaders. The, the 12 tribes of Israel named after Joseph and his brothers, they all were the beginnings, the reason why they were in Egypt in the first place. And inside Joseph, they thought he was dead, but then he ends up being alive and the rescuer of his family. Sound familiar? They came to Joseph, and he makes this argument here. They came to Joseph, and the first time they didn't understand who he was. But the second time, he revealed himself to them. Oh, there's, there's Jesus. There you are. Verse 17, he makes an argument for Moses. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dwelt, dwelt, dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. There's a, if you go back and read in Exodus, the Pharaoh is so worried about the overthrow of his kingdom by the Hebrews that he was killing all the firstborn babies. And so Moses was thrown into the river also, but he didn't die. He, he ended up being rescued. And he was among the people, but they didn't recognize him because he was a, an Egyptian. He grew up in an Egyptian family. He grew up ruling in, in Egypt. 
your, your boy Moses, he wasn't even a great Hebrew. Like he wasn't even a great Hebrew because he grew up an Egyptian. He also murdered somebody. If you go back and read Exodus, he also murdered somebody. This is not the God to follow, but they're anchored to this tradition, this way of doing life and doing worship that they miss Jesus. And I'm afraid that churches are not one millistep off of this. Or we're so used to things a certain way that we miss Jesus and where he's going and what he's doing. We're so focused on remembering the past and our tradition or our denomination or our leaders that were before us that we love so much that we, that we hold them up higher than we should and, for, and forget what really happened in their imperfections. And know that Jesus is the one who's putting all this stuff together anyways. In verse 27, he starts telling them, hey, it gets way more clear. And if you notice, there's kind of a, a crescendo if you're into music, understand that language. It's sort of building where he's being more and more specific on how you, who've got me under trial, who are trying to kill me, you've really missed it. Let me show you a little more clearly how you missed it, how you missed it. Verse 27, Moses, you thrust aside and asked, who made you ruler and judge over us? Jesus was thrust aside. They didn't want him to be the ruler or judge over them. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey them. He's saying, why would you hold on to Moses? He's not the answer. And then he gets to David in verse 47 and 48. David, who is their hero, their conquering king, King David. You can ask anybody who's Jewish, what do you think about King David? They'll all say, he's the best. He's our conquering king. He was the best ruler over Israel in all of time. He's the king we should have. If we could have a king like David today, it'd be amazing. He, he's the guy. They think about him as the guy, but David never actually worshiped in the tabernacle. They had the tent that went around with him, but it was Solomon who built it. So even having David, he's, they're screaming David wants, David's our heritage, David's our legacy, and he's trying to say back with this gentle humility, Listen, God is not in this building. He's not contained by this building. So Stephen's building an argument of Old Testament history. And, and it made me think about a friend of mine uh, named Matthew who had, he had uh, a group of kids, he was a disciple and they were all atheists. And this group of kids that um, wouldn't wanna come around to any of the events they were doing with their parachurch organization, but they would sit in a garage and argue and argue and argue. And after time and debate, answering the hard questions that people ask about Jesus and the gospel, these kids softened up and their thinking got wider and the concept of God became bigger as opposed to small and insignificant. The look at history started to play on and they go, you know what, maybe there's something to consider here and eventually the Holy Spirit breaks through and all of those guys come to Christ. Stephen was holding their religion up to the light and says, is this enough? And for us today, he does the same thing. He holds up for us. Is this what we believe about Jesus and is it enough? Is he the absolute authority, the ruler, the king over all things? Does he have the space to speak into any place in your life and ask you to let it go? Or is he an accessory that you keep around for the blessings and, and hopefully the positive mojo and juju, you keep your Bible next to you, but you never read it? In college, I was in a class, the psychology of religion, and the president of the atheist agnostics department or program at A&M, which by the way, you can have one of those, but they're starting to look at more closely if it's a Christian or religious organization, and if they're gonna exclude people, maybe you shouldn't get to do that. But there's full on, 
any other organization. This one in 99, I guess it was, the president, Jason, sat next to me. Jason had a nose ring. In 99, that was crazy. In 99, if you were a dude with a nose ring, there was something really off about you. He had a nose ring, he always wore a black trench coat, he had black pants, black boots, and he sat next to me and he was, a, he was an atheist Satanist. He was kind of in the mix and he, would, he really loved worshiping Satan and got crazy about some praying to demons. It was a really unique deal. And so I would sit with the next in the class and I was terrified. And so what I did was, I put my Bible right between he and I on the desk. I was terrified because he walked around with his own Bible. He had a King James, a black one, he carried around and he goes, oh yeah, let me show you where it's inconsistent. Oh yeah, here's where it contradicts itself from Old to New Testament. I don't believe this, but I'm gonna show you why you shouldn't. And he walked around with it everywhere he went. And I was so afraid, I didn't know anything about the Old Testament, so I just sort of like put it in between us and thought, maybe the Bible will be enough to block <laughs> whatever's happening there. But, but so often, this is as deep as it goes for us. We have a Bible, we don't read it. We have the word of God, but it's not the source of absolute truth and clarity for all things. This will hold up to the light how we practice following Jesus and it will show us where we have totally missed it. Because everybody practices religion. My hairstylist said, I'm not religious. I'm glad you're a pastor, I'm not religious. I don't have a hairstylist. I'm glad to say that. There's a stylist at the, then whatever. Both of, there were two people in, this, in the, the barbershop I was at that said they're not religious. Yeah, barber, it really is a barbershop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the places and the practices where they fix their eyes, where they fix their time, where their money, anywhere we fix our eyes, our time, our money, our hope, we're no different from the ruling Sadducees and Pharisees that are trying to put Stephen to death. These are the things I worship. This is where I put my hope, my security, my satisfaction, my significance are in these things. If I'm successful, if I'm a good dad, if I'm a good mom, if I'm a good husband, if I'm a good servant at the church, if I give a lot of money, there are a thousand ways we can put up practices that are above the worship of the one true God. We're all religious, but are we, are we in relationship with Jesus? That's the question. And so in verse 51, and I, I'm realizing I'm gonna need to wrap up pretty soon. In verse 51, the tone shifts drastically. It gets really, really intense. Look at it. He finishes telling them, hey, these are why your, your leadership and your Pharisees and your hopes are, are washed out and, and not significant. And then in 51, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And then in 51, he says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as did your fathers before you. He gets real sharp, and they get real angry. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in ears and in heart. While one part of their anatomy looked different and set apart, their ears and what came into them, their hearts, what they held dear, was no different than the world around them. Not set apart, not reserved for the Lord. You'll see later on in 57, they cover their ears because they don't want to hear it. And the Holy Spirit is always speaking. The Holy Spirit is always engaging us, saying, let this piece of your heart open to me. Talk about this thing. Trust me in this way. Don't be afraid to follow me in this direction. The Holy Spirit is always speaking. And, and the church is full of people and pastors that oftentimes do this. 
I don't want to hear right now. God, make us a church, a people that, that hear from you and hold dear in our heart the one true treasure, the one true king. So in this moment, they'd seize him. We read it at the beginning. They gnash their teeth. They cover their ears so it looks like, a, like an angry gorilla or something running with their hands over their ears, teeth gnarled. And they grab him and they throw him outside of the city. Jesus is thrown outside of the city. And they, they go to stone him to death. And he, and he dies in front of Paul. Saul of Tarsus, he dies. And in this moment, Sam and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. In this moment, the seed is planted for what it is to have a life well lived. In this moment, a seed is planted in Paul where he's looking at that going, that is supernatural, that is powerful, that, I don't have that. Where peace that surpasses all of my anger, peace that surpasses all of my insecurities, peace that surpasses all of my knowledge that I think I have enough to, to figure out life on my own, I saw a man die with peace where he said he saw God and that, that splinter stuck in his mind. One of my favorite books is The Way of the Disciple. It's by a guy named Erasmo, M-E-A-R-K-A-I-K-A-S. Don't even try to say that because it's a hard word to say. But his name's Erasmo, it's called The Way of the Disciple. And he says this in one of the pages. If we're gonna be disciples, we must pray to become like wax before the advancing fire of God's holiness. Wax that is only too glad to be changed by the heat into a more useful shape. Glad even maybe perhaps to be consumed as it feeds the beauty of a burning, life-giving flame. Stephen's life was consumed for the glory of God. And the light that it brought shone into the heart of Paul. And not too long later, God breaks Paul loose. He saw God with his eyes, Matthew 5, 8. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There are three scriptures you can go look and say, giving up the things in my life that I'm holding on to, this is where life is found. You can write these down. Matthew 16, 25, Luke 9, 24, Mark 8, 35. But let's leave the nominal Christian life. There's a church in Highland Park that changed their mission statement to rescue people from the nominal Christian life, and it made a ton of people mad. Let's not sit and gather and give a little bit and serve a little bit and, and be hands over our ears for the Holy Spirit. Let's not do that. Let's be a people that are full of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and that maybe our lives are totally used up for his glory, maybe. There's a, there's a couple ways to go out. We can go out golfing and hanging out. We can, go out. we can go out on a beach someplace. We can finish our life after we are done just sort of uh, enjoying and fizzling. Or we can go out on fire. We can start a church at 70 and disciple people and, and try, to, try to see where God would lead me no matter what it costs. We can move to a different city. We can join a church that needs some help. We can let go of any resources we have, like we talked about last week, for the, for the glory of God, for the gospel. We could do that. Uh, a friend of mine talks about how he'd like to, like to go out and He's like, if I got cancer, I'm not gonna lay, lay there dying in, in my bedroom. I'm gonna get on a motorcycle, I'm gonna cover with gasoline, I'm gonna light it on fire, and I'm gonna jump it off into the, <laughs> into the Grand Canyon. This is how I'm gonna go out. And man, what if, the, what if the church is full of people that went like that, where their lives really, really meant something? 
where the gospel was really loud and clear in their life, where they understood how to compel men to follow Christ, to, to catch men. And we wouldn't just be a boat. We'd be a boat that we really fish for men, and they actually come. Men and women come, not from different churches. So they like our style of worship. They come out of darkness into light. What if God did that? Then, we, then we'd be a church on mission. God's grace is so sufficient, and, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say. Stephen only got to do that because of God's grace. We only get to be here because of God's grace. Our sin is only forgiven because of God's grace. Stephen was likely, one commentator said, one of the, the priests that got converted. There was a Greek speaking, had missed Jesus all the way around, but somebody discipled him, and he understood for the first time. that his sin was not counted against him. If you're here and you've never heard that before, that all of your sin that you think about, you don't talk about, cannot be counted against you, but was counted against Christ. If you never heard that before, here's your window to receive the free gift of grace. And if you're a son or daughter of the king, if you're a believer who's just forgotten that, then the pace and the priorities of my life have shifted from the things that are eternal to the things that are temporal. This is our opportunity to remember the grace of God that called us out in the first place, that has given us a new hope and a new purpose and a new peace. This is our window. And so we're gonna have one song to sort of respond to the text. We have one song to sort of lean into the Holy Spirit. And I've asked Josue just to like give us 30 or 40 seconds to listen to the Holy Spirit. We take our hands off our ears and listen. Our prayer team, we're gonna have a couple in the back left and the back right. If we can pray for you, this is the space to go, God, I need help with this. I asked Josiah to pray for me this morning around this sermon. We can ask for prayer for anything. If God's leaning on you, don't miss it. Go get prayer. And then worship. And then engage God the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit via worship. But take a little window to lean in to the Lord God Almighty who has done this, accomplished this, and let him tell you whatever he wants to tell you. So you might respond to him in faith and then God might light you up, make you available. Lord Jesus, thank you that Stephen is an example for us. But Jesus, you were the example. Stephen showed us how to follow you, but you've invited us to follow you. You've given us your own life as a testimony, a compelling evidence of God's love for us. And Lord, so often we bring it low, so often we just put it on the shelf, the truth of the gospel and who you are. And so God, would you um, stir up by your Holy Spirit in us right now that afresh again? Would we be grateful that our sins not counted against us? Would we be grateful to serve you? And would we think about how, by your spirit, we could serve you in a different capacity? God, would you convict us of our dependence on all kinds of things besides your word? Give us a love for it again, God. And if there's somebody here who's never trusted you, would they fall into your grace? When they look at the historical evidence of the resurrected Christ and, and believe that you love them, then God, would they say, okay, I don't, know, I don't know everything, but I know enough to know that you're good and worthy of following. I give you my life. Lord Jesus, would that happen today? So Father, meet with us. Holy Spirit, draw up out of us the things you wanna draw out of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.